We have been working our way through Genesis, and uh, we're up to Genesis chapter 31, but we're going to take a break from Genesis until, until the beginning of next year, and today and next week, and then we'll culminate on Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to talk about the Incarnation. And, uh, so today we're going to look at um, some scriptures from the New and the Old Testament and then next week, we're going to look at the account in Matthew. And then Christmas Eve, we will, uh, we will read the Christmas story as part of our uh, worship service and have communion. And it won't be a long service, but we just um, wanted to give that opportunity to worship on the eve before we celebrate the birth of our Savior. So let's open our Bibles to John the Gospel of John, chapter 1. <clears throat> John 1, 1. We're going to read the first four verses and then verse 14. Let's read together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse 14, John goes on and he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, God, open our eyes and open our ears and our minds and allow your truth to fill us, to change us, to renew us. God, reveal Christ to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it doesn't matter where we are in the scripture, whether we're in Genesis or whether we're in John or whether we're in Revelation. The Bible is about Jesus. It, is, it was written, it was preserved, and it is given to us and revealed to us for the purpose of revealing Christ in you and through you that he may fill, that his image may fill all in all. Indeed, everything, every corner of the creation, that it would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And that knowledge of the glory of God 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, is revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why God caused light to shine in your heart that you might see and have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So the incarnation, what is the incarnation? It's kind of a, you know, it's a kind of a big word. It sounds like some theological term. Uh, and we, we use that phrase, theological term, as if it's something that's above us, but it's really not. It's really very simple. The incarnation is the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. The incarnation is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, or the Word, or the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is this word becoming flesh. It's this word that was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The incarnation is the God-man. It is Jesus Christ, 
the divine nature of the eternal Son of God was united but not mixed with. Hear me, church. Jesus is called the God-man. He is truly God and he is truly man. He doesn't have a mixed nature. He has the nature of God and he has the nature of man. He is absolutely unique. There is no one and nothing like him. He is other than anything and everything else. This is the incarnation. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The divine nature of the eternal Son of God united with the human nature of man. Jesus became flesh. He took on flesh. He became a human being and he dwelt among us. So the incarnation is not something that is new that we just find out about in the New Testament. Christmas is not something we celebrate just because of our New Testament scriptures. The incarnation was something that was foretold in all of scripture. In fact, you read my Facebook post, the incarnation, the prophecy of the incarnation really begins with in the beginning. John, I think it's not an accident when he begins his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. And I I really believe that John is referring us back to the beginning of creation. The beginning. What is that word beginning? What does that imply to us? I mean, what is there before there is a beginning? What existed before the beginning? God, that's exactly right. And God existed before the beginning means what? That God has no beginning. And God has no end. That's what it means to be eternal. He is the infinite, eternal God. He doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. This is what is meant when we read in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. He says, behold, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. It's it's a way of saying, I am the eternal God. But God made a beginning. The eternal God who has always existed, who is, made a beginning. A beginning of what? A beginning of the creation. A beginning of this material world and this material creation that we live in and that we are of. And it was that beginning which began the incarnation, if we can say it that way. God made the material world. He created time and he made a time in which the Son of God, the uncreated Son of God, would come into his creation and be manifest tangibly, materially, in a real way. Jesus was not a spirit walking around on the earth. He was a real person. He was really God in the flesh, walking on this earth. He had a real body. It really bled when he was crucified. It really died when he died and gave up his spirit. This is the incarnation. 
It was foretold in the scripture more than seven centuries before the birth of Christ. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Over seven centuries before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah prophesied the incarnation. And I think it's very important for us to see, to understand what Isaiah prophesied. And we should not just read over these scriptures and take his words for granted because his words have great meaning. So let's read this Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the incarnation was foretold in the scripture. And the incarnation has changed everything forever. Now, you might not realize that. The world around you is caught up with all kinds of things. Just read your newspapers, listen to the headlines, read the news on the internet, read the headlines, and you'll see the world is caught up with all kinds of things. And I think for for large part, the world is unaware that Things have changed forever and are being changed forever. And how is that change taking place? That change is taking place because of the incarnation. Because Jesus came to earth. Because God put on flesh. And he did it for a reason. He did it with a purpose. And he did it knowing that he would change everything eternally. So let me uh, hold your place there in Isaiah, but I want to take you back to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. And I want to read some verses from Matthew chapter 4 because Matthew quotes... Isaiah chapter 9, but he quotes some earlier verses from Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read it to you from Matthew instead of Isaiah because I want want you to see what Matthew, the gospel writer, has to say. He gives us some commentary, a little bit of commentary here, and he informs us about what Jesus did in relation to and how Jesus fulfilled this prophecy uh, in the early part of Isaiah chapter 9. Now, this scripture I'm getting ready to read to you, Matthew writes this, and this takes place right after Jesus. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, and immediately after Jesus is baptized, the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord leads Jesus into the wilderness. 
And after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness and he is tempted by Satan. And those temptations are, are uh, recorded for us in the Gospels. Three temptations. And each time Jesus is tempted by Satan, he resists Satan, he quotes the scripture, he quotes the word of God. And when the temptation of Christ and his time in the wilderness is finished, Jesus comes back from his wilderness uh, journey, if you want to call it that, his trial in the wilderness, and he begins to do ministry. And this is where we're going to pick up Isaiah, I mean, Matthew chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 11. Then the devil left him. This is after the last temptation, and he he returns from the wilderness, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 9. And Matthew quotes, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, so Jesus begins his earthly ministry after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness. And when he comes back and begins that ministry, Matthew quotes the scripture from Isaiah. And I want to draw your attention to what Isaiah prophesied about the people. This was not just unique to the people who lived in the region known as Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were tribes of Israel. These were regions named after these tribes. It says that those who set, the people who set in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who set in the region and shadow of death. Yes, that is true for those people in, in Zebulun and Naphtali, but do you understand that that is true for us today? That when we're born into this world, we're born into darkness. Until Christ comes and raises us from the dead, until Christ comes and gives us light, we sit in the shadow and the region of death and darkness. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says the same God who called light out of darkness has caused light to shine in your heart. Paul is giving us the the natural creation, the first creation of the material world, which is a picture of the new creation that takes place, that transpires in our heart. We sit in darkness. We sit in the shadow and the darkness of death. And God, it is God who says, let there be Light. Jesus came to those sitting in the shadow of darkness. And he was the light and he is the light in the darkness. The incarnation is the king and the kingdom of God breaking into and changing our world forever. 
We, that is true in the sense of the world, the cosmos. That is true in the sense of your world, which is your individual life. It's true at every level. This is what the incarnation is. It is God breaking into our world and changing everything. It is God, the God who is light, coming into the darkness and driving out and dispelling and breaking through the darkness. This is the incarnation. And the change the incarnation brings begins on the inside. The incarnation, the word being made flesh and dwelling among us was manifest where? First, inside the womb of Mary. Before Jesus was born and put in a manger, Jesus was conceived. He was placed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And it was inside the womb of Mary that the incarnation began. We can say it like that. That's where the incarnation was first manifest, was in the womb of Mary. That incarnation, that change of the world began on the inside. So before Jesus was manifest outwardly, he was manifest inside the very womb of a virgin. And the change the incarnation brings to us begins inside of us. It begins with an inner spiritual transformation that produces a new heart and brings about a new mind. Inwardly, Jesus, the Bible describes him. John writes in verse 14 of his gospel, chapter 1, Jesus, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Where was Jesus full of grace and truth? He is grace and truth. That is who he is to the very inward core of his being. The reality that Jesus inwardly and in every way we could possibly describe it. He is the manifestation of grace and truth. This is the incarnation that Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, manifests outwardly. And that same must be true for all who have been changed by the new birth and have confessed Jesus in faith. Have you been changed by the new birth? Have you been born again? Have you confessed Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus If the answer to that question is yes, then the greatest change, the first change that must take place, must occur inside of you. Grace and truth must be something that is inward, that is in you, that describes you, that now is part of your very nature and being. Doesn't mean you always get it right. Doesn't mean you won't fail because we will all fail. We will all get it wrong. But we don't stop at failure. We don't stay fallen. The grace of God makes sure that we do not stop in our failure. The grace of God makes sure that we do not remain fallen. The grace of God picks us up. The grace of God cleans us up. The grace of God empowers us 
to not only have grace and truth in our inward parts, but that we would be a people, that you would be a person, that I would be a person that would manifest outwardly the very grace and truth of Jesus Christ. So Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message is still true today. To repent is to change one's mind. That's what the word repent means. It means to change your mind. You'll never change your direction until you change your mind. You'll never change who you are outwardly until something in here, in your heart, in your soul, in your mind changes. This is why the writers of the New Testament stress so much the renewing of our mind. Because the renewing of our mind is bringing us into conformity to the reality of our new birth. Just like our little children are growing up into mature adults. It's a messy process. But we know that they're going to get there because that's what is supposed to happen. And good parents help their children get there. Not without failures, not without mistakes, not without messes, not without setbacks. But the messes and the setbacks and the failures don't stop the process. And this is the work of a good God, a good Father, and the Holy Spirit in us that is growing us up, that is maturing us, that is causing the grace and truth of Jesus in us to be manifest outwardly through us. So repentance, repentance is an inner work. It's to change one's mind. It's to turn your heart and your mind and so turn in your way to the Lord. It is to manifest His grace and His truth. It is the inner work of the Spirit of God that is manifest outwardly through us. So the work of the incarnation is constantly increasing. It is ongoing and it is increasing. Your children and you are growing and maturing. Now, some of, some of us who have lived long enough, and you say, well, I'm done growing. But do you know that there are even parts of the human body that never stop growing? I've heard it said that your ears never stop growing. You ever notice why really old people have big ears? Because your ears don't stop growing. They say your nose doesn't stop growing. I, I don't know, you know, that's, you know. So we're, we're, never, we're never finished growing. Now, if that's true physically, how much more is that true spiritually and emotionally? If you ever come to the place where you feel like you can't grow anymore, there's a problem. You need to repent of that. You need to change your mind of that attitude because God wants us growing up in him constantly, increasingly, all the time. God wants us coming into a knowledge, a growing knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ, of the person of Jesus Christ. He wants our vision, our ability to see Jesus to be better and better and better, clearer and clearer and clearer, the older and the longer we live. So the work of the incarnation is constantly increasing. 
Let's go back to our scripture in Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to take some time and I want us to look in detail at this scripture. I love these two verses because they present to us an amazing picture. So what we're going to do when we look at these two verses, we're going to pull back a little bit and we're going to look at this description of who God is. Who is this incarnation? Who is this child? Who is this son? Who is this God-man? And who he is has an, has an implication for our lives. If you don't know who this God is, if you don't know who the incarnation is, if you don't understand the purpose and why God brought about an incarnation, it will have a very adverse effect on your life, whether you realize it or not. You could live a very happy, fulfilled life in worldly measure and worldly standard, but if you don't understand who Isaiah is describing and what he is telling us about the world and the kingdom, I promise you, your lack of knowledge and your lack of understanding or your ignoring this truth will have Grave and severe consequences. I'm going to read these verses again. Then we're going to look at some points in specific. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So I want us to look at first this phrase, unto us. Unto us. God has given unto us. You know, a lot of people are looking for God to give them something. And I'm not saying that's wrong. We really should understand that we are to trust God for everything. You know, I always say, it doesn't matter who signs your paycheck, God is your provider. Uh, It doesn't relieve you of responsibility. doesn't relieve you of diligence and hard work and doing what you're supposed to do. But never, ever think that you or somebody else is your provider. God is your provider. And if you don't know that, it's just the grace of God that, He is still providing for you the way he does. Unto us, God has given. So the reality is that we deserve nothing from God except his wrath. That is the truth, church. Much of the church doesn't believe that, doesn't understand that. But this is, I think, very clearly set forth in the scripture. We deserve nothing from God except his wrath. But in God's grace, he does not give us what we deserve. Instead, God has given unto us a son. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God in his grace has given unto us not what we deserve, but what he desires. Don't ever think that God's chief His first and foremost desire is not you or me. His chief and his first and foremost desire is his son. 
And you and I are not accepted in the Father because of who we are or because the Father loves us. We are accepted into the Father because we have been joined to the Son by grace through faith. And we are accepted in the Father because the Father loves the Son, because we have become one with the Son. The love of the Father flows to us by and through the Son. The Son is the desire of the Father. Doesn't mean He doesn't want us, doesn't know us, doesn't love us. But He doesn't want us, He doesn't know us, and He does not love us apart from the Son. Remember, here is the rejection of the cross. What you have, I do not want. What you have, I do not desire. But here is the grace of the cross. What I desire, I give to you. Unto us, a son is given. What God desired, he gave to us so that we could come to him in that one who is his greatest desire. Above all things, God's desire is in his son and he has given unto us the object of his greatest desire he has given unto us his son to become our life there is nothing greater that god could give us than the gift of his son for unto us a child is born unto us a son A child, a son. God didn't just give us anything. He gave us a child. In particular, he gave us a son, not just any son. He gave the son. He gave the son of God. Do you realize the absolute magnitude of the gift of the son of God that has been given to us? We we can't in our humanness. In our finite minds, we cannot grasp the magnitude of what has been given to us. But I want to tell you anyways, and I want you to wonder anyways. I want you to try to imagine. I want you to believe that the magnitude of God's gift is so great that it's beyond our human comprehension. I want you to look at any and every other gift. I want you to look at any and every other thing you could possibly receive from God or anyone else and know this, that the greatest gift that could be given has been given. There is no greater gift than the gift of the Son of God that has been given to us. Please, let us pray that God would give us a revelation of the magnitude of the glory and the greatness of the gift that he has given us in his son. There is no greater gift to be given or received. God has given unto us his son. The question is, have you by faith received that gift of his son? Have you trusted in this son? Then Isaiah says this, and the government will be upon his shoulder unto us is given a son. And the government will be upon the shoulder of this son. This word government is a Hebrew word that means the prevailing power as of a prince. 
the prevailing power shall be upon his shoulder. The empire, the government shall be upon his shoulder. He, the son, shall carry the burden, the weight, the responsibility of the rule and the governing of his never-ending, ever-increasing kingdom. You ever seen a picture of presidents before and after they leave office, even if it's just four years? You look at a picture, I don't care who it is, any president, you look at a picture before they come into office, as they come into office, and you look at them when they leave office, and you will see the age, the stress, the weight of responsibility that that office in just eight years I don't care if we are the leader of the free world, so to speak. I don't care if we are the greatest nation on earth, the most powerful, the richest. I don't care if we carry a greater responsibility than any other nation on earth. It pales in comparison to the government that has been placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. The government will be upon his shoulder. He is the power that shall prevail over all forever and ever. He has prevailed and the increase of his government and peace has no end. He's not in there for an eight-year term, a four-year term. His government, his kingdom has no end. It's not decreasing. It is eternally increasing. Do you count yourself his loyal subject? Are you ruled and are you governed by him? Now, I'm going to tell you something. You are whether you know it or not. Whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, he is the king and his kingdom has come and it is ever increasing. He rules all. When he gave his commission to the disciples in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore. Did you catch that? All authority. All authority. That means there is no authority above his. None. He is ruling. Are you ruled by him? That's a question that we must all ask. Then it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name, his name, the prevailing power And rule cannot be separated. The government cannot be separated from his name. Philippians 2.9, speaking of Jesus, says that the Father has highly exalted him and given unto him the name that is above every name. Why? Because Jesus didn't try to take it by force, but instead he humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death. He put on flesh, came to this earth, obediently died on a cross. And because of his humility and his obedience, 
God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name. His name that is above every name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We could spend hours talking about just those names and what they mean, but we don't have time for that, so we won't. There is matchless and supreme power in his name. James 2.19 says, Even the demons believe and tremble. You don't think there's power in the name of Jesus? You may not think so, but the devils know so. The powers and principalities that are, that you can't see, they know the power that resides in the name of Jesus. They know the authority that resides in the name of Jesus. They know the rule and the reach of the kingdom that is the kingdom of our God. Do you know that? You should. You should believe that. You should stand in awe of that. You should be amazed by that and that God in His grace has made you through Jesus Christ a part of that and given to you His name. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Call upon His name. Paul writes, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be put to shame, but whoever calls on His name will be saved. Romans 10.11 and 13. In giving us the Son, the Father has given us the name of the Son. What are we getting ready to celebrate in just 10 days? Christmas. Christ Mass. Someone posted an article the other day I read, The Heresy of Keeping Christ in Christmas. I'm like, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. There is no Christmas without Christ. Because Christ is about Christmas. Listen, I'm not anti-Santa Claus. You guys should watch the movie Saving Christmas by Kirk Cameron. It's hilarious. It's such a good movie. I'm all about Christmas trees. I'm all about Santa Claus. I'm all about presents. I'm all about eating. That's all fine and good. Because all of that, if we understand who Christ is, if we understand this kingdom, if we understand that in the beginning God created and brought into existence the material world, we shouldn't have a problem with those things. But we shouldn't do those things. We shouldn't celebrate those things. We shouldn't observe those things apart from knowing who Christ is and that none of it would exist if it were not for Christ. That's why every day really is Christmas. Because if there is no Jesus, we have nothing. Listen, the moment Jesus wants to wrap all this up, everything we see around us, it's gone. Because he is the one holding all things together. This is what Colossians teaches us. Literally, he is the one. So don't get hung up on all that Christmas tree bah humbug stuff. Enjoy your Christmas tree. Enjoy your Christmas dinner, enjoy your presence, enjoy all of that, but don't enjoy it apart from Jesus because he is the reason we can and we do enjoy all of those things. 
So God has given us not only the son, but he has given us the name of his son. And in that name resides his authority over all. It is in that name, in his name, in the name of Jesus. And it is in his authority that we are commanded to go and to make disciples. What is the mark of a disciple? Do you bear the mark of his name? Do you know what the mark of his name is? Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. The cross is the mark of his name. It is the mark of a disciple. Then Isaiah writes, he, he tells us of his name. And then he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Of the increase. What the Father has given unto us in the Son is given for increase. L- listen, the scripture is very clear. When did the kingdom break into our material world? When the, when the Son was born. We're going to look at this in our next Uh, And just right here in these verses. And he gave to us what he gave to us for the purpose of increase. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is not a natural or a carnal or a worldly increase, but an increase of his kingdom in spirit and in truth and in glory. It is all that his name is and all that name contains that is to increase with no end. He is, and so his kingdom is infinite and eternal with no end, with no limit of power, with no limit of peace. He himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. And in him, we become partakers of his endless kingdom of peace. Is the increase of his kingdom and his peace a reality in your life? God wants it to be. Then he says, upon the throne of David. Upon the throne. What does a throne speak of? It speaks of a king and it speaks of a kingdom. Guess what form of government we are not in America. There's a reason we don't have a throne in Washington, D.C. Our founding fathers made sure of that because they came from a country that had a throne and they said, we're done with the throne thing. But they did, I believe, Now, I've caught a lot of flack from certain people over this, but I happen to believe, this is my personal opinion, you can believe what you want to believe, but I happen to believe that the founders of our nation, for the most part, understood that the only throne that would rule this nation would be the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, which is why they wrote our Constitution, our founding documents on biblical principles. I'm not saying they were all Christians. I'm not saying this is a Christian nation because it is not a Christian nation. Because people are Christians. If you want this to truly become a Christian nation, then we need to be busy about the business of the kingdom, making disciples, changing hearts and minds through the power of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the people change, guess what? The nation's going to change. It really will. Upon the throne, a throne speaks of a king and a kingdom. It speaks of a theocracy. God will not organize a democracy to govern his kingdom. Jesus, the king, will rule his kingdom in a theocracy. The word theos is a Greek word that means God. 
Theocracy means government, the rule of God. So God will govern. He will rule his kingdom. The divine king will rule upon the throne and his rule is absolute and complete. Do you acknowledge that rule in your own life? Has your heart become a throne from which he governs your life or do you trust only yourself to sit in that place? Are you listening to me, church? Have you allowed your heart to be a throne from which God rules your life or do you only trust yourself to sit in that place to rule your own life? I pray that you abdicate that throne and let God have that place. Psalm 2, 6 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Kiss the son, verse 12 says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Acknowledge the king's rule over and in your life today. Kiss the son, be blessed, and put your trust in him. And then Isaiah writes this, to order and to establish it. God is the sovereign over all. He is ordering and establishing all things according to his will and his eternal purpose in his son. And he does this all for his own glory. Acts 4, 25 through 28, you can read that later, teaches us that God ordered and established the very crucifixion of his son by sinful men in his predetermined purpose. God is ordering and establishing his kingdom rule in and through all things right now. Whatever you might be walking through in your life right now, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's ugly, whether it's light, whether it's dark, whether you're at a high point or a low point, know this, that God orders and establishes all things. So wherever you are, whatever you are walking through, trust the one who is ordering and establishing the rule of his kingdom. This is why the scripture teaches us that in and for all things we are to give thanks. Ephesians 5.20, in all things give thanks. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, for all things give thanks. Because in and through all things, God is ordering and establishing his kingdom and his rule for his glory. The question is, do you trust God to order and establish your life according to his will and according to his word and according to his ways. Do you trust him to do that? With judgment and justice. Some people think that God is a God of judgment in the Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament and God now has a new personality. He's, he's you know, thy, uh, what's the word for that? He's a... Uh, 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 schizophrenic that's right god's not schizophrenic he doesn't have one personality then and another personality then now with judgment and justice god has always been a god of grace he's always been a god of judgment and he's always been a god of justice he does not change in his grace god is ordering and establishing his kingdom with judgment and justice god is just and he is the judge in all things that he orders and allows are just 
and his judgments are right and true. Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Just because God doesn't clue you in on everything, just because God doesn't tell me why he does everything in my life, why he allows certain things, why, just because does not mean that God is not just and that his judgments are not fair and true and right. His ways are past finding out. The God who is ordering and establishing all things is doing so with judgment and justice that is both wonderful and glorious and full of grace. Always full of grace. From that time forward and forever more. From what time? From the time that he has given us a child, a son. From that time of the incarnation when Jesus broke through into this world in flesh. From that time forward and forever. He is the king and he and his is the kingdom with no end. And the increase of his kingdom is forever from that time forward and forever. That means that his kingdom has been moving forward and increasing from that time and will continue to increase and move forward forever. Do not let the illusion that time passes without progress or that current events that seem like they're out of God's control. Don't let those things, don't let the illusion of those things rob you of the reality of God's kingdom. The revelation of His forward-moving, ever-increasing kingdom. Don't look at life from a natural point of view with natural eyes only. See by faith and know the increase of His kingdom Know that it's moving forward now and forever. So the question is, what kind of eyes do you see the world with? What kind of eyes do you see your own life? Do you see them only with your natural vision? Or do you see them through eyes of faith from a kingdom perspective, knowing that God is ordering and establishing, knowing that his authority rules supreme, knowing that you are in his love and care by the grace of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you see the world? With what kind of eyes? Are you blinded by sin? Are you blinded by doubt and fear? We all have been. And we all all are to some degree. But God is in the business of healing blind eyes. God is in the business of opening blind eyes. Opening deaf ears. Breaking hard hearts so that we can see by faith the glory of his kingdom. And the last line of these verses, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The word for zeal in the Hebrew scripture is an interesting word. It literally means jealousy and envy. Now you don't think, now we do, there's a scripture that says God is a jealous God. But you don't think of God as being envious. That word envious is also the word that we, where we get our word, it means to be covetousness. Well, the Bible, the, one of the commandments is don't covet. But yet the Bible says that God, 
the zeal of the Lord will perform this. The jealousy of God will perform this. The envy of God will perform this. What in the world is God jealous of? What is God envious of? God is jealous for and he envies the glory due his son that is misplaced. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's Zechariah 4, 6. The increase of his government and peace, the march and the work of the gospel is not by might, it's not by power, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the zeal of the Lord. It is that God is jealous for the glory and the praise to be ascribed rightly and justly to the only one deserving. Who is that only one deserving of all glory and all praise? It is the express manifestation of the image of God. It is the God-man. It is the incarnation. It is Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and all honor. This is what God is jealous over. When we set up idols in our life, knowingly or unknowingly, God is jealous of that. Because whatever idols we set up, that is what we are glorifying. And God is jealous and envious of the glory that we ascribe to our idols, that we ascribe to ourselves, that we ascribe to so many other things other than the one who truly deserves all glory, all praise. The zeal of the Lord will perform this God's desire to make known and to fill the creation with the knowledge of the glory of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This is what the zeal of the Lord is performing. He is filling the creation with the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It was that that zeal of the Lord that sent a child, a son born of a virgin. It is the zeal of the Lord that brought us the incarnation, the God-man dwelling among us and now dwelling in those who by grace through faith are born again and joined to Christ by the Spirit of the Lord. These are the chests that God is filling with his treasure. Men are looking for treasure chests and God says, no, your chest is the one that I want to fill with my treasure, a treasure that earth, the wealth of earth cannot buy, cannot purchase. It was purchased only by the blood of the son of God. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. By grace, This is the zeal of the Lord at work in you to make Christ and his rule known in you and through you. So is the zeal of the Lord working in you to change and to transform you for his glory? Do you know that it is? Do you know and can you feel his zeal? Can you Feel, do you know his intense desire to glorify the Son through your life? Do you know his zeal in his grace that empowers you to live and to walk in his spirit? You do that by the zeal of the Lord. You do that by the grace of God. 
So I challenge you to know and to make known his joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He has come. That's why you'll find us sing that song sometimes when it's not Christmas time. Because that is a song that should not be reserved just for Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. You don't need to be just reminded of that in December. You need to be reminded of that every day of every month of every year through eternity. Because I promise you in eternity we will have joy because the Lord has come. Because the incarnation took place. Because God said in the beginning let there be light. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he created a time when the son of God, the uncreated son of God would put on created flesh and live and dwell among us. And he would open our blind eyes to see his glory. He would open our deaf ears to hear the glorious word that would bring us life, that would change us and transform us and take us from death to life, from darkness to light, that would translate us into the kingdom of the son of his love. God did that. The incarnation did that. We will celebrate. We will commemorate. We will have joy unspeakable and full of glory for all eternity. Joy to the world for the Lord has come. The incarnation has revealed to us the God-man, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end, for he himself is our peace. This is why the angels boldly proclaimed that night, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, for our peace had come wrapped in the flesh of a baby laying in a manger, truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you have not, trust in him now. Call upon his name and pray that his zeal consume you, transform you, renew you, and conform you to the very image of the incarnation, to the very image of the Son of God. Please stand and let's pray. God, in your zeal, change us, we pray, Father in heaven. It is our prayer, it is our cry, it is our desperate need, whether we realize it at all or in whatever measure, God, we need to be changed. And only you can change us. Change us and deliver us from our sin from our false ways, from our fear, from our doubt, from our pride, from our false humility, from our self-reliance and our self-righteousness. We pray the zeal of the Lord perform this to make known and to make manifest the increase of your kingdom and your peace in each of us for your glory to be seen and to be known in the world around us by our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and those chance strangers we meet on the street, God, that your love, that your kingdom, that your peace, that your life would be 
made manifest and made known in small and in great ways. We pray this, God, for your glory because you alone deserve all the glory and all the praise. We pray this in the name that is above every other name. We pray it for the sake of and in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Come on, give the Lord a good hand. And thank Him and praise Him for His grace and His goodness.